government mandates, civil unrest, wars and rumors of wars, and a believing community trying to live faithfully in a hostile culture. Sounds like stuff right out of today's headlines, doesn't it? I'm actually talking about the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're beginning our series through Daniel today. And since this is the first sermon in the series, I just want to introduce the book to you. And specifically, we're going to look at two things about the book. We're going to look at its historical context and then its central theme. So let's take out our Bibles together and turn to the book of Daniel. We'll be in chapter 1 for most of our time today. That begins on page 737 if you're using one of our church Bibles. And as always, I'd like to begin in a word of prayer, and then we will begin our study. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, how grateful we are to be gathered together as a church family today. Thank you for each one who is here. Lord, I pray, I pray your every blessing upon each of them. And thank you for your word, for the timeless wisdom that it contains. Lord, today we especially give you thanks for the book of Daniel Though written thousands of years ago, it speaks powerfully to our situation today. Help us today as we seek to understand the big picture of the book. Might this uh, set the course for our series? And Lord, might you work some of its lessons into our heart today? Might we leave this place more confident in you as a result of our time in your word? We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin with the historical context of the book. If you look at the very first verse of Daniel, you'll notice that it mentions two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Babylon. If we're going to understand the book of Daniel, we need to understand something about these two kingdoms. So I'll start with Judah. The story of Judah actually begins with a promise that God made to the patriarch Abraham more than 4,000 years ago. That promise is recorded in Genesis chapter 12. God said this to Abraham, quote, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. So God says to Abraham, I want you to leave everything that you have ever known. And I want you to go to a new land that you've never seen before. But I'm going to give that land to you. And I'm going to gather up all of your descendants, and I'm going to make of them a nation. And through that nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now imagine that you were in that position. How would you respond to this call from God? Well, Abraham believed in God, and so he went. He left everything that was familiar to him and headed for this new promised land. More than 600 years after Abraham departed for this promised land, God gathered up all of his descendants, rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, and he established them as a nation. These were the Jewish people. And God made a covenant with the descendants of Abraham at Mount Sinai. God said to them, I will be your God, and you will be my people. 
And I will make of you a great nation as I promised your forefather Abraham. And you will be a light to the Gentiles and the Savior of the world himself will come through you. And the people said, yes, God, we want this. We will keep this covenant. And so the nation of Israel was born. But friends, almost immediately after this nation was constituted, it began a pattern of unfaithfulness to that covenant with God. They quickly descended into idolatry. The morals of the nation became worse than that of the pagan nations around them. And so God began raising up prophets. And he used the prophets to confront them with their covenant unfaithfulness. And he called them to repent of their ways, to renew their commitment to God. He warned the people through their prophets that they were going to lose everything if they didn't turn back to him. Generation after generation, God sent these prophets. Men like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah. But instead of listening to these prophets, the children of Israel just continued their downward spiral. Until finally God's warnings started to come to pass. The northern kingdom of Israel was the first to go. Around 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire rolled its war machine into northern Israel, destroying that portion of the promised land and carrying many of its people into captivity. Ten of Israel's twelve tribes were lost in that invasion. Now all that was left was this tiny little southern kingdom called Judah. It's a tiny little rump kingdom with enemies surrounding them on every side. And as the book of Daniel opens, this is all that is left of the great kingdom of Israel. This is little province of Judah. And we see who was reigning over the little province. It was a man named Jehoiakim. This was a weak and feckless king who only helped them descend even further into corruption. And even this was about to be undone. In fact, by the second verse of the book of Daniel, Judah is gone too. Everything has been taken from them. All of God's warnings have come true. Now, how was Judah lost? Well, Judah was destroyed by Babylon... That's the second kingdom that we saw mentioned in verse 1. Like Israel, Babylon had a very ancient history as well, but in a lot of ways it was the parallel opposite of Israel's history. So according to Genesis chapters 10 and 11, uh, the city of Babylon was established immediately after um, Noah's flood. It was a rebellious city from the start. And its first ruler was a man named Nimrod. He was the world's first dictator. Babylon was also the location of the Tower of Babel. This city from the start was utterly corrupt. The Babylonians came to worship many false gods. 
but eventually they developed a chief god called Marduk. And here is how they worshipped Marduk. They built this great statue to Marduk, and they cut a hole into his belly. They stoked a fire inside of it. And worshipers would come to this statue with their newborn babies, and they would throw their babies alive into the burning flames inside the belly of Marduk. And to drown out the sound of the baby's screams, there would be worshipers there pounding the drums so you couldn't hear. Then after the ordeal was over, all of the adult worshipers around the statue would engage in a great orgy. That's how they worshipped their chief god. Babylon was corrupt to the core. For a time, the city of Babylon was a part of the Assyrian Empire, the one that had uh, destroyed northern Israel. But after Assyria's great leader, Ashurbanipal, died, a civil war broke out in that empire. Eventually, the whole empire collapsed. Well, as Assyria was collapsing, the Babylonians saw their opportunity, and so... Led by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians drove the Assyrians out of their city. That was around 726 B.C. Soon the entire Assyrian Empire had crumbled and the Babylonian Empire had taken its place. And as we look back to the opening verse of Daniel, we see who was leading this Babylonian Empire at the time of uh, Daniel's life. It was Nebuchadnezzar. A man named Nebuchadnezzar. This was a man with soaring ambitions for his empire. He wanted to see Babylon become the great superpower of the world. And this man was just ruthless enough and smart enough to make that dream come true. So after he became king, he declared himself to be a god, launched a program of expansion. In 605 B.C., he defeated the Syrians and the Egyptians in the famous Battle of Carchemish. Then he set his sights on the land of Judah. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar's assault on Judah began in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. That's the year 605, the same year as the Battle of Carchemish. So, Nebuchadnezzar conquered the Syrians, he conquered the Egyptians, then he turned his sights on the promised land, began his siege there. As we look at the subsequent verses, we see that he ransacked the city of Jerusalem. It reads, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels of the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar successfully marched into Judah. He ransacked the temple, the holiest site in Judaism, stole some of the temple treasuries, took them back to the land of Babylon. And then he took some of the best and brightest of Judah's men. Ship them back to Babylon, too. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
It says, Then the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal, of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So Nebuchadnezzar has rolled in, he has ransacked the temple, he has reduced Judah to a little vassal state, and now he has even taken the best and brightest out of the land. Ship them off to Babylon where they will become his servants. And Daniel was one of the men taken into captivity. Daniel was roughly 15 years old when they kidnapped him and took him away. So to summarize the context of Daniel then, here in these opening verses, we're introduced to two kingdoms. We have the kingdom of Judah, which is an unfaithful covenant nation on the verge of losing it all. Then we've got the kingdom of Babylon, pagan kingdom from the very start, now arising out of the ashes of the Assyrian Empire, becoming the great world superpower, about to overrun Judah. By the second verse, Judah is gone, the people are captive, and the entire book of Daniel from this point forward will take place in Babylon. In the first half of the book, we're going to follow the lives of Daniel and several of his friends as they try to live a a life of faithfulness in the midst of this new pagan and very hostile culture. Then in the second half of the book, we're going to read a series of prophecies that God gave, which tell about the future of Israel and of all the nations. These are the two kingdoms that feature prominently in the book. But then, friends, there is also a third kingdom in this book, kingdom that I've not mentioned yet. It's a kingdom that is not of this world, but which stands above all of the kingdoms of men. That third kingdom is the universal kingdom of God. This takes us to the central theme of this book. The central theme of the book of Daniel is that God is sovereign over the affairs of men. Even when it seems like God is not in control, even when it seems like all hope is lost, even when God's own covenant nation has been overrun by pagans and some of their people taken into captivity, even when it seems that all is being lost, God is still sovereign And he is marching history forward to his appointed end. The message of this book is that all things are under God's rule and control, from the greatest thing to the least, that nothing on this planet happens apart from God's direction or permission, and that God is working in and through, and even in spite of sinful people, to bring his kingdom down to earth. One day he will even set his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, upon a throne on the earth where he will sit as King of kings and Lord of lords. Unfaithful covenant nations cannot thwart 
God's plans. Pagan superpowers cannot slow him down. No individual can stop God. He rules over all. His kingdom will be established on earth. His son will be the king. And the destiny of all of his people will be everlasting joy. This is the message of Daniel. And the book of Daniel is saturated from start to finish with passages affirming the absolute control of God over all things. Let's look again at the first verse of this book. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. But now look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. So the rise of a pagan superpower, the crushing of this covenant nation, this was no setback in God's plans. The wheel of history was still turning forward. God had given Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. This was part of his plan. God was still in control. And then look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Look back at verse 21 again. He changes the times and seasons. You know, we hear it all the time these days. The times are changing. Things are different than they used to be. Yes, they are. But the changing times are by the will of God. He ordains all things. None of this has caught him by surprise. The wheel of history continues to turn. It is moving forward to the establishment of his kingdom. He removes kings. He sets up kings. Every world power in office right now is there by the will or permission of God. Every king that's been deposed has been deposed because of God's will. He rules over all things. Look at chapter 2, verse 44. It says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So there is a universal kingdom of God. He rules and reigns over all things, but God has also determined that He will set up what has been called a mediatorial kingdom, a kingdom on the earth ruled by His Son. He will bring that kingdom about. And when it is established, no one will be able to thwart it. No one will be able to undo it. It will stand forever and ever. Kingdom of Assyria fell. Kingdom of Babylon would soon fall. Further kingdoms prophesied of it, of in this book would rise and fall. America rose, and America one day will fall. But the kingdom of God will not be stopped. 
It will be established and it will be forever and ever. Daniel 4, verse 17. The Most High rules over the kingdoms of men, and He gives it to whom He will. Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Daniel chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. Tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. You see, throughout the book, this central theme continues to rise to the surface God reigns over all, and God will bring His kingdom to the earth, and nothing can stop it. And everything that happens between now and the establishment of that kingdom is by the will of God to bring that kingdom to pass. And friends, every story and every prophecy of this book demonstrates the sovereignty of God over all things and how He is marching history forward to accomplish His will. We see in the opening verses how he ordains the rise of Babylon and the fall of Judah. Later we see his prophecies about kingdoms yet to come. Then God will explain how he's going to use these coming kingdoms to bring his own kingdom about. He gives dreams and then God interprets those dreams. God rescues Daniel from a den of lions and then he reduces Nebuchadnezzar to a beast of the field. God is in control of all things. Everything in this book screams that the God of heaven is sovereign over all. And in so doing, the book of Daniel also shatters every false view of God embraced by the Western world. Book of Daniel shatters the God of open theism, which says that God does not know the future. At best, he can just make educated guesses. The book of Daniel says, no, God's knowledge is exhaustive. He knows all things past, present, and future. And he knows what's future because he has ordained the future. And God knows what he has ordained. This book shatters the God of process theology, which says that God is in a constant state of flux, just like the physical universe. And as the universe is changing and evolving, so God changes and evolves. And, of course, God cannot know the future in this scheme either. Daniel confronts that false view of God by showing us a God who is eternal and unchanging and who states the future and who makes the future happen. Book of Daniel shatters the God of therapeutic deism. This is a God who creates the world and then he kind of step backs and remains uninvolved except in those moments when people cry out to him because they need help 
God, help me. I'm sick. I'm, I'm running out of money. My relationships are falling apart. And then God comes in and he fixes your problems and then he steps back out again. No, the book of Daniel shatters that view of God. It shows us a God who is fulfilling his own purposes and we submit to his plans. He doesn't submit himself to our plans. And he's a God who does not create and stand back, but he's a God intimately involved in the world that he has made, making his plans prevail at every step. The book of Daniel even shatters the God of the Arminians and the Molinists, who, like the others, would say that God's will is subject to the will of man. That God has to look ahead and see what decisions man will make, and then God reacts and makes his own choices. No, God is the initiative taker in this book, and people react to what God has done. Friends, the God that we're confronted with in the book of Daniel is a God who is eternal, transcendent, unchanging, and holy, and who is exercising his kingship over the world for his everlasting glory and his people's everlasting joy. He's a God who calls us to join him in accomplishing his purposes, but he does not submit himself to our plans. My friends, all of this should be electrifying to the people of God. Michael Barrett has written, quote, The absolute and supreme sovereignty of God is perhaps the most comforting theological truth that God has graciously revealed to us about himself. Isn't that so? To know that the God of heaven is absolutely and totally in control of this world at all times, that there's no such thing as an event that sets God back. He is always marching forward with his plans. And his plans are good. They're for the joy of his people and the glory of his name. Commitment to the sovereignty of God can give us patience in times of adversity. I know these past two years have been really tough. They've been hard on me. They've been even harder on some of you. We've had two years of a raging pandemic. Tens of millions have been infected. Hundreds of thousands have died. Within our church family, I think we all have loved ones who have lost their lives in this pandemic. It's been hard. And then you add on top of that the overbearing government rules to try to control the the pandemic. And how those have been crushing. They've left people lonely and isolated. No wonder drug and alcohol abuse and suicides have been through the roof the last couple of years. Some people have been forced into a a, a crisis of conscience. Their employer has said, you must do something that you believe is wrong. And then you have to ask that question Do I keep my conscience clear and lose my livelihood? Or do I break my conscience and then ask God to forgive me but keep putting food on the table? It's been a hard couple of years. It's easy for us to grow weary in a sin-cursed world like this one. But friends, knowing that God is sovereign over all of it not only allows us to endure these hard times, but it allows us to thrive. 
Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... And then verses 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, my friends, God's sovereignty means that even in those times when evil seems to be triumphing, when the people of God are suffering, when good is being declared evil and evil is being called good, when your life seems to be in constant danger and the cause of God seems to be hanging by a thread, even those times, all things are moving forward according to the providence of God. And He is going to take every evil thing and turn it around and use it for His good purposes. And nothing bad can ultimately happen to God's people. Knowing that God is sovereign gives us patience in our adversity. But then it can also give us gratitude in times of prosperity. Joel Beakey has written, quote, In the kindness of God, things do not always go wrong in this world. Isn't that a relief? Even in the the midst of this pandemic, haven't we experienced some wonderful things at Grace Baptist Church? We have seen God's provision in remarkable ways. We've continued to enjoy worship as a church family. We've had the comfort of our friends and our family members. God has continued to supply us with food and clothing and shelter. God surrounds us with the beauty of nature, with the hot sun in the summertime and the bitter cold breeze that brushes your cheeks in the wintertime. God fills our lives with good things. You know, this is all of God's grace. That even in a broken, sinful world, we should experience these wonders. When these things come to us, we realize it's not because of our innate goodness. It's not because we were smart enough to work out a nice life for ourselves. But it's because of the sovereignty of God. And in God's sovereign grace, He has filled our lives with all of these wonderful gifts. See, His sovereignty gives us gives us comfort in adversity. It gives us gratitude when times are good. It also gives us confidence about the future, even optimism about it. You know, a few days ago, I was sitting at the bedside of a terminally ill patient, and he wanted to talk to me about this looming crisis between Russia and Ukraine. If you're not familiar with what's going on there, very briefly, uh, Russia has amassed a force of of more than 150,000 soldiers on the border of Ukraine, along with all kinds of war machines. He's even erected military hospitals on the border. And according to the latest reports, these forces are beginning to uncoil, which means they're starting to get into attack formation. And President Putin of Russia has made some demands on the West, and he says if the demands are not met, then he's going to send his force in. It would be the largest ground invasion since World War II. A lot of people are very anxious about this, especially after Putin started overseeing the nuclear drills as part of the buildup. But you know, this 
this patient in his hospital bed. He was talking to me about the crisis. He's an old war veteran. And he just started smiling. And he laughed. And he said, you know, it's not going to end here. What he meant was, even if the worst case scenario happens here, that will not be the last page of our history. Turn the page. God has a plan that goes beyond the Russia-Ukraine conflict, beyond a third world war, if that's what should come. God's going to establish a kingdom on this earth. And over it will be His Son, Jesus Christ. And it will mean glory for all of God's people. So he looked at this crisis, and yeah, it's bad, and it could get really bad, but he says, it's okay. That's not the end. He understands the sovereignty of God, and that God ordains the future, and he knows the future is bright for God's children. You know, this man also has complete confidence in the face of his own terminal illness, because he knows that God's plans aren't just for the the big things, the, the rise and fall of kingdoms. But God has a plan for our individual lives. This man understands that his own illness was ordained of God for his ultimate good. And he is prepared to die. He smiles as he talks about his approaching death. He tells me in this this wonderful, deep southern accent that he can't wait to see the the bright light. He he tells me it's going to be brighter than the light of the sun. He wants to see that bright light. And he can't wait to feel the sensation of his soul departing from his body and making its way up into the presence of God. And he says to me in that accent, it's going to be a smooth ride. He can't wait to experience it. He knows that God is sovereign over his life world affairs, and down to the individual level. And so whether it is the death of of himself or the death of a civilization, he is at peace because he knows that God's plans are good in the end. Something else that knowing about God's sovereignty can do for us, it can fuel our worship. You know, a God who can't see the future or is indifferent to the affairs of his own creation, or whose will is subservient to the will of man, this is not a God that inspires worship. But the God that we're confronted with in the book of Daniel, this is a God we can worship. A God who is big, who rises above all of the affairs of man, who is deeply involved in the creation that he loves who is working all things together according to the counsel of his own will, someone who will bring a kingdom of light and righteousness, a God who knows the future because he's ordained the future. This is a God that we can worship. In fact, that's how the Baptist Confession of Faith ends its section on God's sovereignty. Listen to what it says. Quote, So shall this doctrine, this doctrine of divine sovereignty... So shall this doctrine afford matters of praise, reverence, and admiration for God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. I'm so glad we adopted that confession of faith last month. 
This kind of a God inspires our worship, as he should. My friend, do you live in constant fear? Has life been so hard that you just want to give up? Are you anxious about world events? Do you long for wisdom in these difficult days? Do you long for relief from it all? Well, if that is you, please know the book of Daniel was written just for people like you. So please come for this series. Learn about the God that Daniel worshipped. And keep this thought firmly fixed in your mind as we go through. The whole world is in his hands. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for the book of Daniel. For the central theme that it presents to us of a a sovereign God who rules the affairs of this world from the greatest level right down to the individual life and who is committed to bringing his kingdom to earth in his time and in his way. Lord, we can trust you. We can walk with wisdom through these difficult days because of the wisdom you've supplied us with in Daniel. So Lord, as we go through this series together, help us to enlarge our vision of you. Help us to learn from Daniel and from his friends as they try to navigate their lives in Babylon. Might we find ways to apply that to our lives here in the West? And Lord, might you be glorified in this new series and in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.